0: The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org about we open our Bibles? Does that sound good? If you brought your Bible, and I hope you did, would you open it up to 1 Samuel chapter 13? 1 Samuel 13 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, and if you didn't bring a Bible, you can borrow one of our hardback black ones under every chair. Uh, 1 Samuel 13 is on page 234 in those black Bibles. If you're uh, opening a phone or a tablet, you can do that as well. If you're online with us, click that little Bible tab or open your own Bible to 1 Samuel 13. Uh We have a lot of work to do today, and uh, so I don't have time to tell you a story or make you giggle or a nice little limerick, nothing. We're going to jump right into it this morning, okay? So let's talk context. We always talk context, especially in these narrative books in the Old Testament. Uh, So here's where we're at in the story of God's people. The Israelites, God's people, are in the midst of the establishment of the monarchy, Okay, for the first time in the history of Israel and God's people, they have a king, Saul. Saul is the first king of Israel. And uh, and so he has been made king. That's what we've been reading about in first Samuel. And what happens with a king is essentially there are two main responsibilities of the king. We already covered this, but I'm just reminding you. The first is that he was to judge or rule over God's people. He's the leader. He's the boss. He's the one who is supposed, that's what the king does. He's ruling over God's people. And then second, he was also supposed to go out and fight the battles for God's people. He was to go out and fight and lead an army up. to destroy the enemies of God's people. But the king of God's people, the king of the Israelites, uh, was not to be like every other king in the world at that time. He was not to have full autonomy like any other sovereign would have. Uh, Israel's king was supposed to submit to a higher authority, okay? Um, And essentially, the word of God, the word of Yahweh, was the trump card for the king, that's how we have figured this out. Uh, the way that it was supposed, the monarchy was supposed to work was God's people governed by God's king all in subjection to God's word. That's how it was supposed to work. Now, uh, last week in, in the first seven verses of 1 Samuel 13, we covered those. Uh, Saul's son named Jonathan, he takes a 1,000 of the 3,000 men in Israel's new standing army and he takes out a Philistine garrison just takes those thousand and they wreck shop around the Philistines, okay? And this enrages the Philistines, It initiates a war between Israel and Philistia that will last for all of Saul's reign as king. So uh, what the Philistines do in response to being kind of dominated by this little force uh, led by Jonathan is that they muster their forces. They, They gather chariots and horsemen and troops. And the text says that they were like sand on the seashore in their multitude. That's how many forces they raise against Israel. And God's people run. They hide, they flee from that. They live and cower in fear uh, and don't trust in the Lord. So what's going to happen? Well, that's where we're gonna pick up today. First Samuel 13, we're gonna jump in at verse eight. So go ahead and take a look at your text and follow along. First Samuel 13:8. He, that's Saul, so Saul waited seven days. The time appointed by Samuel But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. Okay, so this army of the Philistines are bearing down on God's people. They are are numerous. They are a huge force, Horse, horse and men and troops and chariots. All of them are bearing down on God's people. And apparently, the prophet Samuel has told Saul to wait for the appointed time. That's what the text says. He said, wait for the appointed time and I will come to you. Now, what we're told is that Saul waited seven days on the Lord. He waited for Samuel for seven days um, before he started to get a little nervous. And uh, even in these first verses, in this first verse, we can make a bit of application. How many of you know or have seen that the Lord's timing and our timing sometimes don't line up so well, right? You've been following Jesus long enough to know this. Maybe you haven't, but uh, uh, first, uh, let me quote a scripture. New Testament, 2 Peter 3, 9 says that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. So that text tells us the Lord is not slow, but he doesn't ever seem to be in a hurry, does he? Right, I mean, like you, you ask him for something, and you, you pray, and you pray, and you pray, and you wait on him. I mean, sometimes like all weekend, right? <laughs> and this is kind of what's happening here. Saul has received a clear instruction from God's prophet, which was to be taken as the word of the Lord. He has received the word of God to wait until the appointed time, but... But as you can see, Samuel hasn't come, and, and Saul was all about waiting on day one, and probably on day two, and three, and four, and five, and six. But day seven, his palms start to sweat a little bit, right? He sees the Philistines coming, and he sees the people scattering from him, and man, something has to be done. Maybe God can't be trusted. Maybe, maybe Samuel got stuck in traffic or, or something, Better do something about this. Verse 9. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. So there's two layers here that we need to address. And the first one is simple, okay? The first is very simply, Saul here is very, he's he's blatantly disobedient to the word of Samuel, the word of God to wait until the appointed time. This is just pure disobedience. Essentially, Saul is disobeying God's word from God's prophet. That one's easy. That one's simple to see. But the second, uh, the text says that, the, that Saul um, offered the burnt offering, which was forbidden in the written word of the Lord. In the law, in the Torah, okay? It said that only a priest in the line of Levi was permitted to make a burnt offering to the Lord. Okay, so now do you remember what tribe Saul was from? Anybody? Benjamin. Yeah, there you go. Nice job. I'm proud of you. Good job, Lori. Uh, he's not a Levite. He's not from the tribe of Levi. He is not a priest. So Saul has no official right to make this offering. And it's not only that he wasn't a priest, he actually was. The king, so that's strike two against him, because the king uh, has now decided to do something that only priests are supposed to do, and the king and the priests were never offices that you would want to combine in the Old Testament. Okay, they exist for two completely different functions. I've thought of some some you know modern analogies. It'd be like um, it'd be like mixing pastor and policeman. Right that's I mean like you don't want you don't want to conf- to to get those two offices messed up okay uh, I'm a pastor you confess to me you confess your sin to me I'll pray for you You confess your sin to a police officer it ain't going so well for you right Because a, a police officer is responsible to uphold the law I I can give you mercy but a police officer better not or they they're shirking their responsibility How about this one um Soccer dad and referee It's like oil and water, right? You think that's an impartial ref? Soccer dad And just for for a moment Soccer dads, if you're in here And I'm speaking to myself as one um, Just settle down Just settle yourselves down a little bit, okay? Your five-year-old is not getting screwed over by the system here All right? (laughs) Just take a look at yourself Take a look at your gene pool They ain't playing for the World Cup anytime soon, okay? So just easy Easy up. Uh, that one's for free, okay? Um, but you'd never want to combine king and priest. You'd never want king and priest. Why? Because the king was the lawgiver. I mean, remember, he was the ruler of God's people, he was the judge of God's people. He was about justice and truth. The priest, though, was supposed to be a friend, a counselor priest was the one you'd come to when you'd messed up. He was the one who could make an offering for the people so that they could get right with God. Whereas the king represented God to the people, the priest represented the people to God. These are two different offices, okay? the king was a person of justice. The priest was a person of mercy, and they never combined those two offices in the Old Testament because one person could not effectively take on both tasks and complete them faithfully. But here, what Saul's doing is he's offering this burnt offering, and he usurps a priestly role, and he's the king. He's not supposed to do that. And I bet it happened like this. Now I understand that this is not in the scriptures. Okay. So let's just stand away for, this is conjecture, but I'm betting this is how it happened. On the seventh day, when Samuel delays, I'm betting that Saul begins to negotiate with himself because this is always the first step of disobedience. Did God really say that? Did, did, God, did God really say that? I mean, what did he mean by seven days, really? Did he mean seven literal days? Like full days or, or what about half days? Do those count? What about business days? Is it like when you order something from Amazon, it says three days, it shows up in five because it's business days? Like is that, what about weekends? Do weekends count? How about the Sabbath? How about Sunday? chick fil as closed. Does that count as a day? Like he begins to, to start to question these things. And, and I talk with so many people who, who do this with God's word. Is that really what God said? Is that really what God meant? And church, it's so much easier to twist God's word into what we want it to say rather than to twist our wants to submit to what God's word says. It's far easier. Did God really say that? And what we end up doing is we end up twisting God's word. And in fact, in twisting God's word, we are twisting God and in effect, creating a different God. Because he certainly isn't the God of the Bible. Let me explain this, okay? We say some, I've heard people say these these things. Well, I don't like what God has to say about sexuality. It seems pretty regressive, well, I don't like what God says about giving to the poor. I mean, I work really hard for what I have. And, and frankly, most of those people probably got themselves into that mess anyway. Well, I don't like what the Bible says about Jesus being the only way of salvation. That seems far too narrow. What about my, my neighbors who are agnostic? What about my neighbors who are atheists? What about my neighbors who are Hindus or Muslim? Like, what about them? Jesus is the only way? That just seems way too narrow. Well, I don't like what the Bible says about ethnicities. No Jew or Greek, male or female, slave or free. That sounds like communist liberal propaganda to me. And and we start to say these things. Did God really say that? And I chose, by the way, two things on both sides of the political spectrum just so that everybody could be offended. Okay? Okay. Well, we say things like, my God wouldn't be so narrow. My God would be far more open. My God values my freedoms. My God values my way of life. And the truth is this, your God probably does. Your God does. But let's just not pretend that's the God of the Bible. That's a different God. And it's actually shocking how much your God agrees with the things that you agree with and, oh, by the way, tends to overlook the things that you tend to overlook. That's not, listen, listen, that's not a God. That's an imaginary friend. So Saul here, he doesn't obey the word of God from God's prophet. And Saul doesn't obey the word of God given in the law, the written word of God. And we're going to see what happens. Look at verse 10. As soon as Saul had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. I love that. As soon as he's done, behold, Samuel shows up. He could have waited three more minutes, but he didn't. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him, verse 11. And Samuel said, what have you done? What have you done? That's what I'm gonna call this sermon. What have you done? I think this is, I think this is a deep, convicting, heartfelt moment from Samuel to Saul. It's almost like I, I just picture him just walking in and just saying, "Oh man, Saul, what have you done?" And and frankly, there are these moments—these "what have you done" moments—all throughout the Bible. All throughout the Bible, I brought, I'll bring a few uh, to you. In Genesis four, we get um, the story of Cain and his brother Abel, the first two brothers in the world. These are Adam and Eve's eldest sons. Okay. Uh, And so in the story, they bring an offering to God. Each of them, Canaan brings an offering. Abel brings an offering. Abel's is accepted and Cain's is rejected. And uh, what the text tells us is that Cain becomes jealous and he rises up against Abel and he kills him. It's the first murder in history, two brothers, okay? Well, God comes to Cain and he says, hey, where's Abel? Where's your brother And Cain says the famous line, he says, I don't know. Am am I my brother's keeper? You know that line? And then the Lord says to him, what have you done? A little bit later in the text in Exodus chapter 32, this is after Moses has rescued God's people from Pharaoh and captivity in Egypt. Uh, And and he is now in there out in the wilderness. He's now up on um, Mount Sinai receiving the law from God. The very law, by the way, that, would, that, that Saul would break in our text, but he's receiving the law from God, and he's up there, it seems like he's up there for too long. And God's people get a bit antsy, and then they say to Aaron, who's the first priest, okay? They say to Aaron, they say, we don't know where Moses went. Why don't you make us some gods? Make us some gods. And so Aaron makes them a golden calf like a baby cow, like veal, okay? That's what he makes him a golden slice of meat. And, uh, and it's an idol, it's an idol. And, and it, these are Aaron's words to them. He brings them the golden calf to Israel. And he says, here is your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. What, that cow did that? That's an impressive little cow. Well, up on the mountain, God, God tells Moses what's happening. God tells Moses what's happening down in the valley. And so Moses grabs the tablets with God's word on it and he goes down the mountain and he throws the tablets down on the rock with disgust, shattering God's law in front of God's people. And he essentially says this, what have you done? This isn't just an Old Testament problem either. In the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 26, at the last supper, Okay, the last dinner with Jesus and his disciples. Jesus tells his disciples that they would all fall away from him and abandon him in his hour of need. He tells that to all these guys at this dinner, and good old Peter stands up, like in good Peter fashion, right? And he shoves his boot right in his mouth. This is his MO, right? Peter does this all the time. He speaks out of turn, but he says, no way, Jesus, not me, Even if every one of these other guys, they're all JV, right? They're on the squad. They're they're, they're part of the team, but they don't have what I have. I'll never let you down. I'll never abandon you. Even if I must die, I'll never deny you. And I, again, imagine, and this is conjecture, but I imagine Jesus chuckled to himself in that moment and just, oh, Pete. (laughs) All right, buddy. All right, little guy. Listen, by the end of this night, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Like, you won't even make it 12 hours, bro. And by the end of the chapter, by the end of Matthew 26, at the end of the night, the text says that Peter is cursing and swearing that he does not know who Jesus of Nazareth is. And then immediately the rooster crows. And the text says that Peter remembered what Jesus had told him at that moment, and he leaves and he wept bitterly. I think he's thinking at that point, What have I done? Let me ask you have you been there? What have you done? What have I done? I have. I've been there. Let's see how Saul responds. Samuel says, what have you done? That was right in the middle of verse 11. Let's pick it up there. And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. This is classic. This is a classic move right here, right? What he is, what, here's, what, here's what Saul just said. He's saying this I didn't want to do it. I mean, I waited and I waited and I, I mean, he starts making excuses. Did you read those? I mean, that's what I saw there. Now, remember what I said a few weeks ago about disobedience, because this is important here. Disobedience is going to feel right. It's going to sound right. Rebellion against God always feels right. It always sounds right, at least to start. It makes sense. So Saul starts making rational excuses here, actually good excuses at some level. He says, well, the army was scattering. How am I supposed to fight the Philistines? How am I supposed to do my duty as king if my army leaves me? And Samuel, you didn't come in time. Seven days. You kidding me? You weren't even here. How, do you, how dare you judge me when you weren't even here? And the Philistines had mustered. You remember those chariots? You remember those horses? 30,000 of those things? What was I supposed to do? And I I realized I hadn't even sought the favor of the Lord. He spiritualizes this. I hadn't even sought the favor of the Lord. We hadn't honored God with an offering. And then did you see his words? So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Y'all saw here defends and he deflects and he denies. He defends himself. He deflects all the accountability and he denies even wrongdoing at all. I forced myself to. I didn't want to, but I did. The reason why I call this classic is because this is not the first time we've seen this move enacted in the scriptures. The reason why I say this is classic is because Saul is just repeating what has been shown to him. In fact, what has been shown to all of us by our first father, Adam. Adam. So another moment of what have you done is actually in Genesis chapter three, we talked about chapter four, but in chapter three, after the serpent tempts Adam and Eve and they eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then they end up, you know, they get, get some leaves. They put leaves over themselves and they hide in the leaves, covered in leaves from God, which is a strange thing, hiding from God when you're the only two beings in a garden. But they hide and God finds them And he essentially asks them, what have you done? What have you done? And Adam makes the exact same move that Saul makes. You remember this? He defends, he deflects, he denies. This is what he says. He says, that woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. He blames, first, he blames his wife, and he blames God, that woman who you gave me, right? The only other two beings in this entire garden, it's their fault. It's like he's saying, hey, listen, God, uh, I'm just going to let you guys, you, you, you and my wife, you guys figure this out, you go work this out. I'm just going to stand over here. You, once you've figured it out, I'll just be over here waiting for your apology. Just, it wasn't my bad. It was all y'all. And Saul's doing the exact same thing that his father, Adam, did. But I want you to note something really interesting that he uses that word, I forced myself. I forced myself. Now last week, if you were around, you know that I said that the opposite of faith is fear. And I'm not sure if you're allowed, like I think that's true. I'm not sure if you're allowed to have two opposites for one word, but so I do think it's true that the opposite of faith is fear, but I also think the opposite of faith is force. I forced myself. Let me ask you this, where in your life are you trying to force some things? And God's asking you to trust him in faith. Yeah, the opposite of faith is fear, but the opposite of faith is force. Saul says, I forced myself and I offered the burnt offering. Well, what's gonna happen? Let's look at verse 13. Well, Samuel said to Saul, you've done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So Samuel, rightly so, he rebukes Saul, and in this moment he rejects Saul's kingship. Okay, he does not outright reject Saul himself at this moment. Okay, spoil alert: that won't happen until chapter fifteen. Okay, he will be rejected outright. That'll happen in chapter fifteen. It's not really spoiling it if it's over three thousand years old. Okay, should have read this by now. But but he does reject Saul's line. He does reject Saul's line. If you remember last week, you remember Jonathan. We met Jonathan. He's Saul's eldest son, and the kingdom would have been passed to him. Jonathan would have become the de facto king. But Saul's line of kings will end with himself. Now, something really, really important happens in verse 14 that we must not miss because Samuel tells Saul, your kingdom is over. Your kingdom shall not continue, but the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Now, if you've been around church for a while, you know who Samuel is talking about here, right? A man after God's own heart. This is a reference to to David, King David. And David is going to show up here again in just a few more chapters. And, And if you know anything about David, you know that David is Israel's greatest king. They don't get no better than him. This is the apex. I mean, king number two, it's a a shame that the second king of Israel is the top point for the monarchy in the history of Israel. But, But this is the guy. He's the one who kills Goliath when nobody else will. He's the one who's gonna actually end this war that Jonathan began with the Philistines. He's gonna put it to rest for good. But what's really important to know is that David as well had his very own what have you done moment. He has had his own failure. And I'm just going to go over it with you. Maybe you remember the story of David and Bathsheba. But the Bible says that in the time when kings go out to war, David stayed home. Remember, that's the second thing that the king's supposed to do. Go out and fight for Israel, but David doesn't. He stays home. And instead, while he is at home, he's up on his roof looking out across, and he sees a beautiful naked Bathsheba, this woman bathing across the way. And he's the king, and the king gets what he wants. And so the king sends for Bathsheba, and she comes to him, and he sleeps with her. And I just—I said this in my D group a couple of weeks ago, but you do realize we would not hire King David to work here. Best king of Israel, we would not hire him to be our worship leader here. I don't care the fact that he is a man after God's own heart, and yeah, he wrote most of the Psalms right? Like songs. He's a good songwriter. Bro can really strum that harp. But I'm just saying, like, you don't want your worship leader up here making eyes at gals in the church. We would not hire David to be our worship pastor here. You understand that, don't you? Well, after David finds out that Bathsheba was pregnant, he wants to cover up his sin. So here's what he does. He calls her husband, Uriah, who, by the way, was out fighting the war that David should have been at. He calls him back and he encourages him to sleep with his wife, to go home and sleep with Bathsheba so that nobody would know who this child, who this child was. And Uriah and his character refuses to do this because he was too honorable to indulge in that kind of pleasure while his men, his comrades are on the front line fighting. So he sleeps on the couch. So David has to come up with an alternate plan and he comes up with this plan. He sends Uriah back with orders that are sealed to hand to the general. And on that sealed document, it says, put Uriah in the thickest part of the fighting. And when the action is the most fierce, pull back so that he will be killed. And that's exactly what happened. So David is an adulterer and a murderer. Again, this is not good resume building material if you want to work at a church adultery and murder. He's making eyes at gals while he's leading songs and he sees the husband sitting next to him. He's like, I'll take care of that guy. Right? Like that's, that's, we're not hiring this guy. So the Lord sends a prophet, Nathan, to David, just like Samuel is sent to Saul. And and Nathan says to David, Hey, I want to tell you a story. Okay. uh, There's a rich man and a poor man. the rich man has tons of sheep and herds and all this kind of stuff, livestock. And the poor man has one little ewe lamb, which he loved like a pet, right? He fed it from his table, let it drink from his cup, probably dressed it up in some clothes. Some of you have dogs like this. Some of you have cats like this. And there's mercy for us all, okay? But, um... But a day came when the rich man was entertaining, and instead of going to his flocks to slaughter an animal for the feast, he went and he took the poor man's lamb, his pet, and he killed it and he ate it. And the text says that as Nathan is telling this story, David is becoming enraged. And David says, that rich man, he deserves to die for what he's done, for this injustice against this poor man. And then Nathan, the prophet, does some prophetic judo, swings it, and he says this famous line, you are the man. I mean, this is essentially the, what have you done, David, moment. And David's eyes are opened. He's talking about me. I was the rich man who had everything. And I took Uriah's wife and I killed Uriah himself. It's as if Nathan unveiled, what have you done? It's like the same moment with Saul. Now, when that happened, David had a choice. Like he could keep playing the game he was playing. Put out a hit on Nathan too. Just take that dude out. Could have shifted the blame, right? Could have said, well, Bathsheba, I mean, she she really shouldn't be up on the roof naked. You kidding me? That's leading a brother astray. It's causing me to stumble. I had made a covenant with my eyes, but she just got in the way. He doesn't do, I mean, he could have defended and he could have deflected and he could have denied, but he didn't. Remember what he did? He wrote a song. I'll put it up on the screen. Psalm 51. This is what it's called. This is the title. To the choir master, Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. They're pretty honest in the Bible, okay? I mean, that's just Frank, that's Frank. That's the title. After he'd gone into Bathsheba, here's what he wrote. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. See, what David knows is that he cannot defend and he cannot deflect and he cannot deny. He must repent. You wanna know what makes David a, a man after God's own heart? You see, it's not that he never Has a what have you done moment. What makes David a man after God's own heart is is what he does after he's found out for his what have you done moment. He repents. He repents. Here's what he says a little further into the psalm, verse 9 Hide your face from my sins, blot out my iniquities create in me a clean heart o god and renew a right spirit within me cast me not away from your presence and take not your holy spirit from me restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit this guy's a liar this guy's an adulterer this guy's a a murderer And he has the audacity to say, restore me, clean me up, fix these things, have have mercy on me. He doesn't need mercy. He needs justice. He needs the hammer of the law. He needs the king. I mean, this this is what Samuel says to Saul. Like, I think back to our text when he said, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. I don't think that's hollow. I think that's real. The Lord would have established Saul's line over the kingdom forever if he had just repented. In response to what have you done? We see here that it does not forfeit the kingdom for David, but it does for Saul. And I think it has to do with a posture of repentance. Now, the rest of chapter 13 is really um, a big setup for a very important moment that's going to happen in chapter Fourteen, And and we're going to handle that next week. I think 13, the end of 13 really sets up 14. It doesn't necessarily help us with what we just read. So we're going to cover the rest of chapter 13 and into 14 next week. But I, I just want to remind you to remember back to the beginning of this sermon because I mentioned that the two offices, the priest and the king, are two offices that would never be combined in one person. Well, that's not entirely true. It's not entirely true. You see, in, in the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says this in chapter 4, verse 14 and 15. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So the writer of Hebrews just called Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, a great high priest. Now that's a little strange, because back again to the priesthood, remember, all the priests are from one tribe of Israel, the tribe of Levi, the Levites. But do you know what tribe Jesus was born into? He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Yeah, we all listen to Bob Marley. We know this, right? He's from Judah. Actually, the very line that King David comes from. And so Jesus is called a priest, but Jesus is also called a king. I mean, Revelation 19 says this, he, Jesus, is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. We know that's Jesus because that's John's nickname for Jesus, the word, the word made flesh, the word of God. That's Jesus. Verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings. And Lord of Lords. So the kings would come from Judah. Jesus is named as the King of Kings. But all the priests would come from Levi, and yet Jesus is named as the great high priest. So there is only one who can be both king and priest, and that's Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one who speaks to us with the justice and truth of the king and with the compassion and the grace of a priest. And that's what this whole book, I think, is actually pointing us to. All of 1 Samuel is pointing us and leading us to the prophet, the great high priest, the king of kings, the prophet, the priest, and the king. So what what have you done? You have these, what have you done moments in your life? Maybe it's something in your past. Maybe it's goodness. Maybe it's something that's going on right now. But if a prophet of God was to walk in here and call you out on that, the message would be, what have you done? If you've got that thing in mind, you really have the same choice that both Saul and David had. You can respond to the charge of what have you done like Saul did and you can defend and you can deflect and you can deny. Start to look for a technicality. Is that what God really said? Is that what God really wants? My God certainly wouldn't. Or you can respond like David. The man after God's own heart and you can repent. Have mercy on me for I'm a sinner see if you've got a what have you done thing going on in your life the Bible's good news for you is that what have you done can be replaced by what he has done this is the gospel cross of Christ, the priest and the king in one person the absolute justice of God meeting the fullness of God's great mercy. The debt we owe to God the king was paid in full by God the son. Jesus is who we cry out to. Have mercy on me. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me. Cleanse me. Create in me a clean heart. Restore me. In this today. Martin Luther said the life of a Christian is a life devoted to daily repentance. Have you done this? Listen, no matter how beaten or broken or battered you are, no matter how you came in here, no matter what kind of wounds you have, not even if they are self-inflicted wounds, if you're here today and you have breath in your lungs, then God's not done with you yet. He will take what you have done and exchange it for what he has done. This is called the great exchange. Theologically, this is double imputation. Your sin for his righteousness. And that swap is made and it's made final. So the question for us today is not, what have you done? The question is, do you believe in what he has done? put your whole life banking it as it were all in on what Christ has done cry out today for mercy cry out today for restoration cry out today in repentance and he is faithful to forgive let's pray together Father what a superb picture here of of what options are available to those of us who find ourselves in a what-have-you-done moment. Lord, for, for your servant Samuel to go to Saul and say, what have you done? And for Saul to fail is actually so helpful for us to see. And for your servant David, after being confronted by the prophet Nathan who said, what have you done? And to respond in repentance is so helpful. That dichotomy is so helpful for us because, Father, we want to throw ourselves on your mercy. We don't want to excuse it. We don't want to defend and deflect and deny the things that we have done in rebellion against you, but rather we want, like your servant David, to cry out, have mercy on us. Restore the joy of our salvation creating us a clean heart. Father, I pray that for myself. I pray that alongside brothers and sisters in this room, even online, who are praying right now, have mercy on us. We want to obey you. We want to be restored. We want the joy of our salvation brought back. And we do that through throwing ourselves at the feet of Jesus. Help us, Father, to do that today. So we love you. We praise you. I pray all these things in, in Jesus' name and in the power of the Spirit.